Alright, so tonight we're going to start with a study of the Gospel of Luke, and an introduction and overview of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you have the notes in front of you. Um, by the way, these notes that, that I produce, what I actually did is I have uh, um, a friend who's in prison, and um, I, I thought, well, you know, here you go. I, I gave a, a simple one, two-page document on how to understand the Gospel of Luke so he can have it and then do Bible studies with some of his friends and stuff like that. So that, that's where this document originated from. And I said, you know what, this works well enough for, for us. It'll be good enough, over, good enough uh, for us to choose as an overview. But if we start in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, I'll, I'll reference the notes as, um, from time, uh, as we proceed. But Luke, chapter 1, verse 1. All right. Uh, let me change the setting from NIV. I like the New American Standard. Oops. New American Standard, and, oh, come on, I just changed it again, there we go, verse 1, in as, many, in as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. All right, what does that tell us? What does the introduction, verses 1 through 4 of Luke 1, tell us about the Gospel of Luke? Or tell us about other things that are going on? There's a lot of people had different ideas ah. about what happened. A lot of people had different ideas about what happened, and those ideas are circulating around. Mm -hmm. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account... There are a number of Gospels out there. And I don't know if we want to call them Gospels, but at least fragments of stories. Uh, certain, maybe they're not whole Gospels. Maybe somebody just wrote a story about this and somebody wrote a story about that. Somebody wrote the triumphal entry. Somebody wrote about this parable. Somebody wrote about... And, 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 and Luke's like, look, uh, uh, many of them are taking the compile of these accounts, so here's what I'm going to do. What's, what's Luke going to do? He's investigated yep. very carefully. He's investigated very carefully. Wrote it out. Wrote it out. In the consecutive order. <coughs> All right. And yeah. Gave it to Theophilus. And, and he's given it to Theophilus. All right. Mm -hmm. that, very good. And these things are so unbelievably tiny. It's crazy. All right. I don't actually like the New American Standard Translation of verse 3 there. It says, um, uh, uh, ESV says, an orderly account, consecutive order in the, uh, there, uh, an orderly account, um, an orderly account, the New Living Translation says, um, a careful account, uh, an orderly account. You see, the idea of consecutive that the New American Standard has here suggests what I discussed last time, that there's this chronological, sequential thing, and that's not happening. That's not happening, and, and that's not what Luke means by that. It means this orderliness there, you know, uh, 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 in terms of what's going on. All right, notice also Luke says, He's carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Anything, anybody know anything about the background of Luke in terms of Luke himself, the individual? Doctor. He's a doctor. We know that from Colossians 4. Luke the physician, which seems to indicate that it's got to be the same guy. Um, that, that Luke's a physician, which actually tells us something significant then. Detail. Yeah, if you've got a doctor, at least you hope, right? Uh, you hope your doctor's detail-oriented, and of course he is. Luke is actually. Are too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you hope they are, right? No. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, uh, Luke is, is very, very meticulous, and, and I won't go off into detail on it, but if, when we get to Acts, we can mention it then perhaps. But Luke is actually extremely detailed. So he says, in this city there's a proconsul, in this city there's a, there, there's a governor, in this city there's a tetrarch, and, and, he, and he's very detailed on that. 
And we thought for a while, scholars did, a hundred years ago, 75 years ago, oh, he's actually wrong. There wasn't a tetrarch there. There wasn't a governor there. There wasn't a procurator there. And then archaeological discoveries come up and go, oh, guess what? For the 10 years that Luke's talking about, there actually was a tetrarch or a procurator or, or whatever governing official that Luke actually mentions. For that one little window, then when Paul was there, that actually was indeed the case. And so Luke has actually been confirmed to us as an excellent historian. Very, very precise and very, very accurate. So it's actually very, really helpful for us. All right, very briefly, Theophilus, the name Theophilo, Theos means God. Phileo is the Greek word, one of the Greek words for love. It's probably not the guy's name. It means lover of God. It might be a nickname of an individual. Um, it could also be a reference to a church. Right? Uh, an entity who is the lover of God. I personally think it's an individual. Uh, he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus, which is an address for someone of the equestrian order in the Roman society. So in Rome, the equestrian order means they own horses. Uh, it's the elite of the elite in Rome. Uh, if you want to be a member of the Senate, and if you want to be emperor, you have to be a member of the Senate, if you want to be a member of the Senate in Rome, you must be a member of the equestrian order. So this is the elite of the elite in Rome. And what it appears to be the case, and early church seems to confirm this a little bit as well, is that the Gospels reached Rome. And a man named Theophilus, or a man who, whatever his name is, becomes a Christian and he becomes known as a lover of God, as a Christian. Right? And maybe he was a, a God-fear, we'll mention them later on. Uh, a convert to Judaism prior to that and was already called the lover of God. Well, whatever it might be, this man is in Rome. He's obviously, apparently wealthy and most, you know, most excellent Theophilus. And he's like, hey, what's going on out there? You know, I, I'm accepting this Jesus thing, but I really want to know what actually happened because I've got all these different stories out there. And Luke says, here's what I'll do. I will go and carefully investigate everything from the beginning and write an orderly account for you so you can know the certainty are the things that you've been taught, because some of the things that you've been taught might not actually be accurate. So Luke is going to compile with eyewitness details. In fact, if we were to go through Luke 1 and 2 especially, we're going to see that there's certain things in Luke 1, and actually in particular in Luke 2, let me bring it up, I think it's verse 20. Um, let's see, uh, 21. Uh, no, maybe, let me see here. Uh, verse 19. All right, now look, look at uh, chapter, Luke 2, verse 19. It says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. How does Luke know that? Mary told him. It seems to suggest that one of the eyewitnesses that Luke actually in, in, investigated with was Mary. There's a lot of chapter 1 and 2 that come from this female feminine perspective that suggests that maybe... Uh, uh, Luke has actually investigated this by, by, uh, by interviewing Mary herself. And of course, we have the Mary story in Luke chapter 1. We have Mary's song in chapter 1. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are, may well be explained by the fact that Mary is one of the eyewitnesses that Luke actually has investigated this with. Um, now, note also Acts chapter 1, and this will be relevant when we get to Acts uh, next time, but uh, Acts chapter 1 very briefly. Uh, and look what Acts chapter 1 says. The first account, I composed Theophilus, about all the Jews began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. It, it seems to be a reference to, to, to the Gospel of Luke, doesn't it? Uh, in, in fact, if we keep reading, you know, I, I, uh, he, he, did, he did these things. Uh, it seems that Acts 1 is a reference to Luke and that Acts is a sequel written to the same person. 
Now, um, and, and, and I'll, I'll save the dating for Luke and the dating for Acts when we get to Acts in a few weeks. I'll, say, I'll save it for that uh, then. Uh, I'm there. Uh, I suspect, I'm not sure if what, what uh, um, the textbook has, I haven't looked at it for a little while, if it references this at all. But I suspect that Theophilus is actually the one who's financing the writing of the Gospel of Luke mm-hmm. and the book of Acts. That's what you're writing as. It, that's what I have in my notes. Right, right, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if the textbook confirms that or not. I'll have to look it up uh, um, later. We'll look at it later. Don't worry about it. Um, but the point of that is that Luke has reached Rome. Theophilus is a Christian. Okay, hey, what, uh, what's the whole story? And, and the answer is uh, Theophilus is going to pay Luke and, and, and compensate him for the time. It's obviously going to take a lot of time. If he's going to go out, eyewitnesses, the travel, the expenses, etc. It's not a, a, a light endeavor. And, and writing books back in the ancient world, uh, not quite as much today, but sp- certainly in the ancient world, was a very expensive endeavor. Um, so Theophilus might be the one who's actually financing uh, um, this account. All right, so one of the good things I think about Luke that often we use, the, the introduction of Luke 1, 1 through 4, is for an apologetic, right? Apologetic means to make a defense. We say, hey, look, the gospel writers were concerned about writing accurate history. That they just were. And Luke is very concerned uh, about uh, surveying eyewitnesses and finding out what actually happened from what didn't happen. And Luke's only going to include things that he knows for sure uh, there. So, um, and uh, Richard Balcom uh, is a phenomenal scholar. If you ever want to know, uh, uh, um, look at the accuracy of the biblical stories. Uh, go look at some Richard Balcom text. I'll, I'll, I'll find some references. On the, they're on the um, bibliography I put up on the website, but it's only 40-something pages, so I'm sure you can go through that, all, uh, all, all the details on that. All right, next thing to know. Uh, he says, uh, Luke 1, uh, verse 1, and let me bring up Luke 1, 1 again in the different translations. Here we go, verse 1. Um, uh, ESV says, the things that have, that have been accomplished among us, uh, New American Standard things have been accomplished among us, but the Net Bible says the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke 1, verse 1. Uh, Net Bible fulfilled. Uh, NIV, the things that have been fulfilled. Um, New Living Translation, the things that have been fulfilled. And the New Revised Standard, the things that have been fulfilled. And the RSV, the things that have been accomplished by us. Now let's go to the end of the Gospel, Luke. Luke 24. Alright, Luke 24. <coughs> And I'm going to start in about, probably about verse 45 or so. Um, We'll see it a couple times here. Luke 24, actually verse 44. Luke 24, 44. And we're going to look at this account probably later on tonight. Uh, But Jesus said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay. Anybody remember, what's that called? When an author frames a text. Sandwich bracketing. Well, uh, no, not, mark the sandwiching. Uh, it's a little bit different. The, the bracketing, right? It's called an inclusio. Right? So just think of the word include and then put it in Latin. <laughs> inclusio. An inclusio is a framing. When you take a passage, or uh, remember um, Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount is framed uh, uh, by references to the words of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus in, the be- in, Mar- in Matthew 4 and then in Matthew 9. All right. Matthew's Gospel is also framed by, uh, he should be called Emmanuel, God with us, and then the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and lo, I'll be with you always, even the end of the age. The Gospel of Mark is framed by, he should be called the Son of God, in, Luke, in Mark 1.1, 1, 1. and then the centurion says in Mark 15.39, surely this man was the Son of God. Luke is now framed then with references to fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Right. Luke 1.1, 1, 1, the things that were fulfilled among us, 
And Luke 24, now verse 44, the things that, uh, the, that were written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So there's a great fulfillment motif, which again is obviously, uh, you know, and that's what Curtis was asking about at the beginning, right? Uh, the, the fact that Matthew begins uh, with a genealogy, that Mark begins with three quotes from the, uh, with a quote from three passages from the Old Testament. John begins with in the beginning, and Luke begins with the things that must have been fulfilled. Okay. Now, what we'll note, actually, as we go through the story of Luke 1 and Luke 2, which we often do at, at, uh, at Christmas time, right? Um, is, and this is on the notes, and let me actually reference the notes here. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, uh, fourth or fifth paragraph down at the bottom of that very first page there. I'm not sure what page number it is. It says right here, another key element in, the gospel, uh, in Luke is the notion of fulfillment. Everybody see where that is? All right. The Gospel of Luke is framed with references to fulfill Luke 1.1 1, 1, and Luke 24.45-47, which I read verse 44. Ends with everything must be fulfilled. This tells us Luke's goal. In Jesus, the promises of God to Israel have been fulfilled. In Luke, Jesus especially the fulfillment of God's promises to David. Jesus is the true son of David. It'll be good, in fact, to read Luke, first, and, uh, first and second Samuel alongside Luke. If you read it carefully, perhaps multiple times, you'll see the parallels. Hannah can't have kids in Samuel, and Zechariah and Elizabeth can't have them in Luke. Yet God gives them both a son, Samuel and John the Baptist, and both events in the, in the story of Hannah and the story of John the Baptist are described at the temple. The parallels actually in Luke 1 and 2, in the birth narratives of Jesus, are actually Samuel. Uh, and, and the reason why is this. Because Samuel is the prophet that anoints David. And John the Baptist is the prophet that anoints Jesus. So that's why John the Baptist's birth now is paralleling the birth of Samuel. Uh, and in, in the, the reality then becomes that Jesus is the new David. Right? The kingship of Jesus uh, and his sovereignty there. That make sense? All right, let's go down to the next paragraph, which I want to actually, we're going to skip now unless you have any questions or comments there. Right, let's, let's go to Luke chapter 4. We're going to come back to Luke a little bit more when we do some things in, think, some things in Acts. But let's go to Luke chapter 4 and look at the episode that takes place in Nazareth. Luke 4 and the episode that takes place in the city of Nazareth. All right, Luke 4, verse 16. Now, what's, what's the significance of Nazareth and Jesus? Born in, Beth born in Bethlehem, but it's his hometown. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's his hometown. That's where Joseph and Mary are from. Uh, from Nazareth, they go back to Nazareth, uh, as Matthew's gospel tells us. After he was born and escaped to Egypt, and he goes back to Nazareth. There, so he grows up in Nazareth. All right, he came to Nazareth. Luke four verse sixteen, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Let me stop for just a second. As was his custom. Here's what's interesting is we only have one account of Jesus being in a synagogue in the Gospel of Luke. But Luke tells us this was a custom of Jesus, which suggests that this one account in the Gospel, in um, Nazareth, of Jesus being in the synagogue, kind of is the paradigm that, that serves as the, as, the, as the model for what Jesus does in synagogues. Maybe it doesn't actually be the same, you know, the same scripture, but this, generally speaking, apparently is what Jesus does in a synagogue. Okay? So here's what happens. Right. He stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. Now, note the New American Standard on the screen here puts in uh, uh, all caps when they think it's quoting an Old Testament passage or a strong allusion. Obviously, this is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Okay, now let me stop for a few minutes, for a minute or two here. Right. First thing is, you may have heard or thought of the idea that, that, that Jesus walks in the synagogue and the scripture reading for that day was Isaiah 61. And Jesus re- It doesn't appear that that's actually the scripture reading for the day. Because he asked for the Isaiah scroll and he opens it to the place he wanted to read from. That wasn't the normal reading. That Jesus intentionally is reading this scroll in this particular part, which happens to be Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And then he goes and says, by the way, what you're reading about, the favorable year of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me, and of course the word anointed one is in Hebrew Messiah, and in Greek it's Christ. All right? The one that's anointed in the Old Testament is of course the king. So he's claim, claiming to be the Messiah. I'm the king you've been waiting for. Right? And, and, and they go, oh my goodness, who would have thought it's Joe's kid? Note, they're all, um, you know the story, you know what's going to happen, right? right? But at this point in time, you've got to stop, because they're all speaking well of him. They're not rejecting him as the Messiah. They're flabbergasted. Uh, a little town of Nazareth, uh, it's this po down town in the middle of this little hill, this valley, there's nothing there. It's, it's like 400 people, and there's not a whole lot of industry, and we're the poor people. You know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, as Nathaniel's going to say in the Gospel of John? Right? It's us. We have, the Messiah comes from us. And they're speaking well of him. So the question becomes, how come in a few verses you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to try to run him off the cliff. Let's keep reading. Jesus says, verse 23, No doubt you will uh, uh, quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. It seems like Jesus is antagonizing them. He's kind of provoking them. But they were ready to receive him as the Messiah. They were speaking well of him. Why are you provoking them, Jesus? This is good. They're they're accepting you. And he said, verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet's welcome in his hometown. What are you talking about? They speak well of you, Jesus. Right? That doesn't seem to fit, does it? Let's keep reading. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was, not sent, to, was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, meaning not Israel, or not Jewish territory, right? There is no really Israel at this time. Right, not Jewish territory, not Galilee or Judea. Um, uh, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian, i.e. not Jewish area or Jewish people. 
And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. What things? That he was going to eventually give the gospel to everyone. He was going to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. I'm going to the Gentiles. Remember the gospel, right? What, what's the gospel? It's Jesus as Lord. And the good news is that you can enter the kingdom of God. All you have to do is repent. <clears throat> and the repentance is available to all. Including the outcasts and the sinners and the tax collectors. Who, remember Matthew's like, whoa, me? Awesome, I'm in. you got to remember Matthew's sitting in his tax collector booth thinking, I've blown it. Right? I blew it. There's the Messiah, but I've already betrayed Israel. I work for Rome. I'll never. Be, I'm. I'm an outcast. I'm. A, I'm. A, so when Jesus says, "Hey, come follow me," Matthew's like, "Are you talking? You betcha! I'm in. Oh yes!" He didn't think he had the opportunity to. But then Jesus is now saying, "And I'm also going to the Romans, to the Gentiles." No, no, no. The Romans are all. They're they're the ones who oppress us. They're the ones, well, we need the kingdom of God to come so we can boot them out. Now, let's do one little, one little thing here. Let's go to Isaiah 61 and see the passage Jesus quoted because there's something intriguing going on here. All right, I'll keep Luke 4 there. Isaiah 61. All right. Now, uh, let me, I'll, I'll, illustrate, I'll illustrate it this way while, you, while you're tuning there. Um, suppose... One of your kids are in, your, in your church comes up and, and they're six years old and they're going to quote John 3.16. Uh, oh, look, at that's, that's so cute. Look at Sally, you know, or Tommy or whatever, or whatever right? Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him will not perish. And oh, that was so cute. We all know what happened, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't finish the verse. Right? But that's okay. It's, it was cute. And they're six years old. We're not going to hold it against them. <laughs> so they're they, they not and have everlasting life. Now, Jesus kind of does this. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because, he's, because the Lord has anointed me to, preach, to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom of, for the captives, and release for those darkness, uh, from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's not in Luke. Jesus stopped. I'm not here to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Is that what he means? Did he stop intentionally? Okay. Now, there's one thing we're working against us a little bit here. If we had a class on biblical interpretation, what we would note is that when the, when, when the uh, uh, biblical writers, or in this case, Jesus himself, when they quote the Old Testament, they'll often quote uh, one part of a verse, and they actually have the entire passage in mind. Okay, so that's just common. You know the whole story. I'm just referencing this one verse. Now I'm bringing to mind the entire Exodus out of Egypt, for example. So it's not an unreasonable suggest he has in mind the whole passage, but it's surprising that he basically quotes this text and stops in the in the middle of what we call verse two, which is in the middle of a sentence. Right, now, also by the way, biblical interpretation note. When, when the versions don't, when Isaiah 61 doesn't match Luke 4, it's because Isaiah 61 is going from Hebrew to English and Luke 4 is going from Greek to English. 
Number one. Number two, we don't know what translation Jesus was quoting from. He may not have been quoting from our version, our, uh, our copy of the Hebrew Bible. Or he may have been quoting from an Aramaic version. So there, there could be versions or translation differences. And furthermore, they often paraphrase things and, and things of that nature as well. Although in this instance, I guess we'd say he's reading the scroll, so he's not going to paraphrase it uh, nonetheless. But that can account for the differences if you're comparing Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. Well, it's not actually completely accurate. The point is, it basically follows the, the, the scroll, but it doesn't say the day of vengeance of our God. And the question is this, who is the day of vengeance of our God on? Who's God going to have vengeance on? If you're a first century Jew, anyways, who's yeah, going to... It's, it's Rome. Yes, yeah, it's the people who weren't Jews. And so Jesus... So I suggest that maybe Jesus is intentionally not quoting this verse right now. Right. Because he goes on to say, I know you're receiving me right now, but let me actually explain something. I'm here to bring the kingdom for the Gentiles, too. And we know that he says that because he says, look, you know, even Elijah and, Eli Elijah and Elijah um, both went to the Gentiles. And when they heard this, that's not the Messiah we want. Right? It's good preaching, by the way, available right there. You, you can preach a sermon on that one, right? Uh, how often do we have a God that, meets, that, that fits our bill? That, that, that meets what I want? And God often calls us or tells us or does things, or even himself is, is not doesn't meet my expectations or my desires. All right, Curtis. Yeah, well, I was going to say, wouldn't that be difficult anyway if he read that portion and then the very next statement he says is, we're going to the Gentiles? Yeah, right. It, it would conflict. It, it, it would. I think that we can understand this, and, and, I'm, and I may, this, this is just my idea, my statement, that we read Jesus... As, as saying, the beginning of his ministry is coming. Hey, the kingdom of God's here. All who want to come in. By the time we get to the end of the three years, assuming it's three to three and a half years, now it's the time of vengeance. So if this is the proclamation of the beginning of his ministry, it's not the time of vengeance now. The time of vengeance is going to be, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hand gathers your chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your city has left you desolate. See, that's three years later. If it, Again, it's hard to know because the Gospels aren't chronological, but it does seem that that fits the end of his ministry and the condemnation. That, 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 that would be more appropriate then as opposed to now. So, um, very well. All right, now let's go back now to Luke 4 uh, and note briefly here then the nature of the kingdom of God, because this is one of the questions on your exam, right? Uh, the nature of the kingdom of God, and note what it is. It's the gospel to the poor. All right, now we're going to look at this. By the way, it's awfully hot in here, isn't it? Is it warm in here? Are you guys okay? It's warm in here. All right, you guys are all right? All right, that's fine. We'll, we'll take care of it in 15... We'll take a break in 10, 15 minutes. We'll take care of it then. All right, no problem. All right. We're going back to Luke. Luke 4. Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. We'll, we'll take a Jonathan Luke 6 here in a little bit and we'll note Jesus's, Luke's version of the Beatitudes. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, it's blessed are the poor. So, so Luke, and I mentioned this on the, on, on the notes, on my handout as well, Luke seems to have a strong emphasis on the poor. And it's the, and why? Because the poor are the ones who are excluded. The poor are the ones the Pharisees have ruled as out. Right? They're the poor and the outcasts and the ones who, and the highways and the byways and, uh, um, and the lame and, and, and the crippled and the uh, um, tax collectors and, and, and the Gentiles. 
See, the poor are those who are excluded by, by the Pharisees, essentially, by, by the religious elite. Right? Um, blessed are the poor. And it, it's this good news. And he's proclaimed release to the captives. Right? Now, this is really important because one of the things I argued the last couple of weeks was that the Gospels present to us that the exile of Israel in the Old Testament, remember, we did this last time, right? The exile that God's going to send you away for your disobedience the exile is actually still going on. And Jesus comes to announce the exile is now over. The captives are Israel, who's been captive in Babylon, but maybe not literally in Babylon any longer, because remember, they're still in the land, they're in the land now. They've come back. Right? But remember, I, I read Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, last time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where it says, we are, we are slaves in our own land. Mm -hmm. the ex so it's released to the captives. What captives? The captives of Israel who are still in exile. Because the king hasn't returned. And now Jesus is coming and saying, the exile is over, repent. It's good news. Right? And it's good news, of course, to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. Right? And that could be literally and, of course, spiritually, right? Because spiritual blindness, but, but of course, literal blindness as well. And it's that free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right? This is the year of Jubilee. Right? And if you're familiar with the idea of, of Jubilee in the Old Testament, but basically it's every 50th year, which they never did, there's not one reference in the Old Testament of them ever practicing the year of Jubilee. Right? Think about it. Who wants to practice it? The poor. Yeah. Who's in power to practice it? The not poor. Yeah. And they don't want to do it. The reality is, I'm not loaning you. It's, it's year 47. There's no way. I'm not going to get anything out of this. In three years, your debt's eliminated. Sorry, I'm not lending to you. Right? It's, it's just this abuse of power. And, well, and, and we see it, right? And so it's, it's this favorable year of this year of Jubilee. Okay. Well, we'll I'll reference Deuteronomy 15 when we get to the book of Acts. But the book of Acts, just as a, as a, as a kind of a, a peek into the book of Acts, it says, there was not a needy person among them. That's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 15.4. There shall not be a needy person among you. That in the household of God's people, there should be no needy persons among you because I'm here to proclaim the, the, the year of Jubilee. And I'm, and I'm going to raise everybody this at least where they have at least their needs. And that's the way the church is supposed to function. Now, some of you might go, well, wait a minute, Rob. I mean, doesn't Jesus say the poor you will always have? He's not stating a matter of fact as though that's just a matter of fact. It's a matter of judgment, folks. You're always going to have the poor because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's your sin as to why you're always going to have the poor among you. If you weren't in sin, there would be no needy persons among you because that's the law right? in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy. All right, so there's great stress in the, in the Gospel of Luke then on the poor. So let's go now, unless we have any questions or thoughts. Let's go to chapter 6. All right. uh, Luke 6, yes, that's right. Sorry. Luke 6. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, not always good. And let's look at Luke's version of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't matter, by the way, because uh, that, that Luke calls it that, that Jesus was sitting on a plain. Um, well, Matthew says it was on a mountainside. Luke says it was on a plain. It's like, does it really matter? No. A, it could be a plain up in the hills. All right, that's fine. B, do you think Jesus ever repeated himself? Yeah. 
Do you think he said, oh, I can't tell you that parable. I told it to Capernaum. Sorry, you know, I've already used it. No, no. Right? No, no. Anybody of you guys that are preachers know that when you go to another church, you can rehash the same old sermons. It's, it's called saving yourself time. Right? Uh, prep time. Uh, that sermon worked over there. I'm going to this church. I'll give them my best. Right? My, my regular church gets my weekly, my weekly sermon. But this church, I get to pick out one of my best ones and make it look like I'm always this good, right? Um, so, but Jesus is going to go from town to town to town, and he's going to tell the same parables. He's going to repeat them over and over again. He's going to tell the same sermons, the same speeches, and same. Uh, uh, so, and it likely the case that the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven, is actually Matthew compiling a statement Jesus made here, a teaching he made there, a teaching he made there, teaching he made there, and putting it into one large sermon. And we suggest that it's Matthew compiling one large sermon because the contents of the Sermon on the Mount are found all over the Gospel of Luke. So it seems like Matthew and Luke are both compiling these sermons. It's not necessarily that, hey, Jesus sat on the mountainside and he said all these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and I happen to remember all of it. No, I just remember he said this, and he said this, and he said this, and he said this, and I'm going to compile this into one great sermon of Jesus. Remember, Matthew has five five sermons that he's compiling. So it doesn't matter. But now look, and, and no. Uh, and remember, uh, I argued last time the book of Deuteronomy, right? 27 through 30, blessings and curses, blessings and curses. And the significance was, if you obey the law, that you're blessed. If you disobey the law, you're cursed. The blessings and the curses are both land and family, right? Uh, that's what's happening. And in Matthew, you have the blessings in the, of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. But you don't have any curses. But they do show up in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you. And so it seems that Matthew separated the blessings and the curses in what we call the Sermon on the Mount and then the Sermon of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 23 through 25. All right. Luke puts them all together. Look what he does. Luke uh, 6, um, uh, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 20. Matthew 6, Luke 6, verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you, sh you shall laugh. And blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil, for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe, here comes the woes. There's the, there's, there's the blessings, here's the curses. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for theirs, their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, note, not only are the blessings and the woes appear to be blessings and curses, but note the parallel between all four of those. The first blessing is blessed are you who are poor. And the first woe is, woe to you who are rich. The second blessing is, blessed are you who hunger. And the second woe is, blessed are you, or woe to you who are well fed. Blessed are you uh, who weep, and then woe to you who laugh. And then the fourth one, and note the parallel here, blessed are you when men hate you, and woe to you when all men speak well of you. But then note the next part in both of those. All right, the fourth blessing is, when they hate you and ostracize you and insult you, for the, for the sake of the Son of Man, be glad and, re, and leap uh, for joy, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And then look at the fourth woe. When all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. 
clearly paralleling the four blessings and the four woes, which I suggest is, is modeled off the blessings and curses in the book of Deuteronomy. Note again now that Lucas changed the first blessing uh, from the Beatitude of Matthew to blessed are those who are poor. Now, we can try to get around this and say, well, you know, Matthew says it's poor in spirit. It's not exclusively just the poor. Um, it's, it includes all who are poor in spirit. But we've got to wrestle with the fact that Luke is saying it's the poor. Sure, Luke includes more, because, by the way, um, uh, who's the tax collector in, in Luke uh, 10? Um, Zacchaeus. Right. Zacchaeus is going to be the poor, because he's in. So it's not exclusively just the physically, monetarily poor, but we got to stop and say, it's the poor. Because it's contrasted with you who are well-fed. Well, he doesn't say poor in spirit. And he doesn't say poor in spirit. Right? So, uh, yes, we can enlarge poor to include Zacchaeus. But in Luke's gospel, there's great stress on the poor. Right. And one of the things we know, of course, is that the poor more easily recognize their dependence mm -hmm. and their need. And so it's easier for the poor to come to faith in Christ because they don't have their daily bread already. Those who live in comfort, who have our daily bread, it, it, right? Let's be honest. How often in our churches do... do when, People often pray when there is trouble. crisis, trouble. Bless you who are poor. As we go on now, look what Luke says. Will you, will you think that would be a past tense? I mean, that he's going to be blessing them at this point? Go, oh. Later on. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Good, all right, good question. Good question. All right. Uh, I, I, think I, got, I think I got exactly where you're going with it. Let me go back. Uh, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. are, are you asking the question, is their blessing something they get now or something they get later? Just in this quote here, in, in this. Is that what you're asking, though? Yeah. Are, are they getting something blessing now versus getting something later? Is he saying that for them? That he's getting ready to, like, two loaves, two fish, and five loaves of bread. You know, uh, I'm just. It's a both and. Yeah. In the sense that the kingdom of God is something that they, they get now. All right, note what he says. For yours is the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. But note the next one. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Mm -hmm. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you. Uh, um, be glad and rejoice. Uh, uh, verse 23. Be glad in that day. So the other three blessings are something future. But for the poor, there is the kingdom of God. It's something they get now. Okay. It begins now. Right? And the kingdom of God includes the recognition of God's sovereignty and that God's the king and in the kingdom of God what do you get? Well you get obviously we're going to find this out later you get the spirit of God to dwell within you. But, but there's no criteria here though um, that, you know for instance if you pay your tithe. That's correct. I'm just oh. saying. Y yes. Sorry y'all. No. no, you're, no. So, so, what, so what's the criteria? It, it, are all poor automatically guaranteed the kingdom of God? Basically. All right, is that is it right? So you mean guaranteed it? Uh, right, because it seems if we take this to blanket statement, mm -hmm. blessed are the poor. If you're poor, yours is the yeah. kingdom of God. Yeah. Now, is that just if you're poor, or if you are a poor person that's in Christ? 
That's the question. Right. Mm-hmm. Can we read this as saying, if you're poor, if you're hungry, and if you're hated, then you are blessed. If you're wealthy um, and well-fed and loved, then you're cursed. Can we read it that way, as, as absolutes? I just really like that. Yeah, I don't think it's a blessed He wasn't living in them, he was living among them here. Yeah, yeah. the answer is no, right? right. They're not absolutes. Right. Uh, the, the reality is there has to be this coming to Christ, this repenting, yeah. right? Don't we, we didn't read this in, in Luke, but in Luke three, don't say we have Abraham as our father, right. because God can raise up from these stones of Abraham. Repent and believe the gospel. That's right. The poor are far more likely to receive it, and what Luke is pointing out more than anything is the economic oppression that happens in the in the nature of Roman society. Remember, he's speaking to a man who's a member of the equestrian order in Rome. Uh, and, and in Rome, it's simply, here's the way it works. In Rome, there's a very small elite that live extremely well. And they do so because everybody else pays for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? There were an estimated 60 million slaves in Rome, in the Roman Empire, that service Rome. Mm-hmm. And the result of everything going to Rome meant actually high grain prices in Egypt. Because they have to produce so much grain that gets shipped to Rome, it left them a little grain to go to a lot of people in Egypt. And, and so economic hardships throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. Right? And maybe we'll touch on this in the book of Revelation now. But all right, a couple of hands were up. Yeah, uh, I have my hand yeah, up. Yeah. Because I thought the first statement that he made, uh, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Right. Qualified that all poor, whoever, would have to accept the kingdom of God. Right. But as we go through Luke, it becomes apparent that those who get the kingdom of God are those who repent. Right. Right. And yes. believe. And repentance isn't simply some one-time act of the will. It, it's this lifelong, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, of following Jesus, the way of the cross-bearing, etc., etc., etc. But it includes the fact that the Gentiles are in. Right. Uh, also, what's the elite we're going to have. So, yes. And I don't know if this has a bearing, but in comparison to Matthew, Luke is the one who said the kingdom of God is within you. Yes, it's in your midst. So you, within you too. And so you would have to have come to terms with, I need to repent. I need to believe this is the the Messiah. This is the one. And so whether you're poor or not, I don't think that uh, applies to you. I think, like you said, applies to those who are in Christ. Or who are believing. Yeah, all right, I'm, all right, I'm not gonna. I don't agree completely, but I'm, but we don't need to. We don't need to filter that out. But but generally speaking, sure, I, I agree. Okay. All right. Yeah. And looking at I guess verse what is it 21? Are you saying that that is going to be fulfilled in the future or now? Because when now. I read it, it's now. It's now. Okay. okay. Beginning now. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the fulfillment okay. is beginning now. That, that that's right. And we're, and we're gonna so we'll skip to Luke 16 here in a little bit. Uh, and Luke 16 is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man and Lazarus is the, is the playing out of this. Because the rich man's well fed. And Lazarus longs to eat the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the dogs that are licking his sore, right? Yeah. And, and look what happens in the eschatological reversal. Lazarus is now well fed, and the rich man is now in pain. Right? And, and so you, you see... I'm the well... We want to be blessed and eat here. <laughs> and that may or may not happen. Yeah, it may or may not happen, right? Now, it, it happens, A, if the, God, if the community of God's people care for one another, but sometimes the community of God's people are themselves oppressed in whatever given state or, or, or locale that they're in. 
And as a result, the entire community of God's people is, is impoverished. And that can be naturally and spiritual. And that can be naturally and spiritual, yes. And is he talking about, on 21, it says, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Is he talking necessarily about a physical hunger? Or is it more the spiritual hunger? You're hungering, and now that's going to be filled. And you're weeping by you, by what I'm bringing you, this gospel. Um, the right. weeping's going to stop. It's both. Right. Right? I think it's both. The, the, the hesitation, though, is that when we say it's both, then we just gravitate to the one and say, okay, it's a spiritual thing. But in Luke, it's not just spiritual. It, 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 there's an economic side of the Gospel of Luke as well, the rich-poor dynamic. And note again how significant this is that he's speaking to a man who's a member of the equestrian order in Rome. Because that guy has to grapple. I, we have to grapple with this. Let's be honest. Right. We're going to have to grapple with Luke 16 in a, in a few minutes um, um, also. But yes. All right. Did somebody else? No. That was just my mind still going back to okay. as a pastor. Yes. And we're preaching telling people that you're going to, uh, you know, uh, for instance, if they're hungry. And there, there are people out there that are hungry. You know, mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, should, so then uh, looking at this, we should have a supply there to give them yeah. then. Is what I'm trying to say. That's right. You're the physical yeah. thing. Yeah. Right. We do the spiritual real easy. I'm talking about that's right. Yeah. That's right. The church has a responsibility in some sense whatsoever to provide for the well-being of its people. Right. Now, it's obviously not that easy, right? And, this, and again, sometimes we say, well, it's not that easy, and then we use it to justify the not helping. Again, right? Awesome. But there are difficulties there. Are we enabling? Right? Right. So we, we work. But... But we can't use that as a justification, therefore, to not do it. Correct. So we, you know, and, and the the answer is, I would, we would be best to, to err on the side of grace instead of the side of law. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I'd rather give grace and give food, and oh, I enabled that person. Sorry, than not to give food to somebody who who genuinely needed it right. because they didn't meet our criteria. So, but boy, it's difficult, isn't it? Right now, yeah. now, and, and one of the things that makes it difficult is the fact that all of our churches are siloed. Right, that our churches aren't now. Bakersfield does a lot better job. I, I was up in the Bay Area for a long, long time, uh, and the churches are totally they, they won't have anything to do with one another. Yeah, uh, so there's a lot better network of, of churches here in Bakersfield. So, all right, somebody else had a hand up. Yeah, yeah. Dan. So, why does he use a rich and poor? Is it that the rich won't give and the poor search? I mean, because it's a <laughs> because what's happened. All right, so in, in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to have. Uh, um, I came as, as a physician to those who, who, who are sick, right? Those who are well don't need a physician. Right? And it's generally speaking, then, we're going to say generally speaking, the rich are in this, not just in Rome, but also amongst the Pharisees. And their answer is, I am rich and I'm well and I'm because I am blessed by God. And therefore I have no need of Jesus. I have no need of, what do you mean? I don't, I don't need to repent. I have no sin. This is the Pharisaical world. More than that, then, the economic exploitation of rich and poor yeah. right, is certainly a factor in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see this here in, in, in Luke 15, 16. So is it a vain purpose for us to reach for riches? Um, is it, oh, good question. Is it a vain purpose for us to, to, to reach for riches? Not necessarily, but whoa. <laughs> whoa yeah, right? Because the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Yeah. Words, it, we just initially, uh, immediately assume it's a blessing, but it comes with a lot of dangers, and, lot, and, and, and it's not for the lighthearted. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I highly recommend a book by Richard Foster called The Freedom of Simplicity. 
don't know if you've read that book or not. Fabulous, fabulous read. If you read The Freedom of Simplicity, by the way, and trust me on this, you don't need to read the first four chapters. You can start in chapter five. Oh, really? Because the first four chapters, all it does is talk about money in the Bible. And that's fine, it's okay, it's good. But you're going to get bogged down in it. In chapter five, through I think like 12, 10 or 12, he's going to hit you hard. And he's going to challenge you know, the freedom of simplicity. And what does it mean? Uh, to, and, and, he, and he brings the reality of, hey, this is the danger of wealth and power and, and all of those things that, that come along with it. So. At that time, did they have something going on where they felt like, hey, if you have money, you're blessed by God. If you're poor, you're cursed. That's especially the case in the, amongst the Pharisees yeah. and, and, the, and, and the religious garb of the first century. That's correct. Okay. Okay. But what's really going on more now, let me, let me set the stage for the rest, of, the rest of Luke here, and we'll take a break in a few minutes and kind of finish it up after the break. All right. What's especially going on is, this, is, is a strong honor and shame culture. We'll, and we'll look at Luke 6 here in, in a second, and then we'll take our break. Right, the strong honor and shame culture. And honor and shame culture exists in all societies. It, it's, it's there. But in some societies, it's, it's simply more prominent. All right? And it's extremely prominent in, in the Roman world. All right? Honor and shame basically means this. Your first goal is to gain honor at all costs. And at all costs means at all costs. Hmm. I mean, the ethic of right and wrong is determined by whether I gained honor from it or not. Okay? So we'll see the Pharisees um, mocking Jesus in Luke 16. They're mocking him because they're trying to shame him to give themselves more honor. See, my, I can gain honor by shaming you. So I'm more honorable than you means I have honor. Now, all of a sudden, somebody more powerful walks in, and all of a sudden, I, I don't have as much honor as, we, as I did a little while ago. So in the, in the Roman economy, honor and shame then was your first goal is to gain honor. Now, what happens then is I will do something for you. I'll invite you over for dinner. But I'm only going to invite you over for dinner under two basic conditions and, and, and basic assumptions. Number one, you bring honor to my meal. If you're honorable people and I invite you, then look how great I am because, you know, Kevin and Sharon are at my meal. I must be something great. Right? Now what happens is I now, I'm now better than you because you owe me. So that's the second condition. There's a debt and an obligation. And that is, until you pay me back, you're in my debt because I gave a meal to you. Sound like church fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> they can't. But now, so, so here's the reality. this. The poor are automatically excluded from this for two factors. One, they can't bring honor to me because they're already shameful, right? And secondly, because they can't pay me back. Okay. Uh, one second. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. No, no, you're fine. But I'm thinking about the life of Joe and his friends that came to his bedside. Oh, and they asked him, certainly you have done something. Job's life was blessed. Three friends, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I would put that in the same context of honor and shame as much as cause and effect. All right. Right? Uh, right? Just Righteousness, there equals blessings. Uh, um, curses equals unrighteousness. You're cursed. You must have done something unrighteous. Because that's just the way it, that's just the way it works. Okay. So that's more of a religious ideology than this economic system I'm, I'm describing. Right, look at look, look what Jesus goes on to say next here in Luke six, and, and this will make sense of it. And then we're going to mention the fact that almost every story in the Gospel of Luke happens at a meal. No. That's why this is so important. Yeah. Right, no, nobody says. I say to you, uh, verse twenty seven: Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Which, by the way, is really 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 hard, isn't it? Yes. It's extremely difficult. Right. First Peter's going to convict us even more on that. All right. we'll, we'll wait. All right. Whoever hits you on the cheek, 
Offer him the other also. Now remember in Matthew's Gospel, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, which means it's a backhanded slap, because you don't do anything with the left hand. I insult, I shamed you. Right? I have more honor than you because I just shamed you. What could Jesus, look what Jesus says. He's basically saying, don't defend your honor. He says, uh, offer him the other one also. Let him shame you more. Whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. All right, stop, Jesus. This is silly. You're going, why would I do that, Jesus? You see, you give so that you can get. Because if I give you something, you now owe me. But I'm not going to give to everyone because the poor can't pay me back. It's fruitless to give to them. So in the ancient Roman society, by the way, what would happen would be, let's say that you know, uh, um, you've, you've got, uh, well, Herod the Great would be a great example. Herod the Great wanted to be a Jewish king, wanted to be received by the Jews. I may have mentioned this briefly uh, a couple weeks ago. Right. But the Jews didn't really accept him as a Jewish king because he was building temples all around the Roman Empire. Now, why would he do that? Because that city owes me, and 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 right? Now I, I'm, I'm, I'm expanding my power because I put you in my debt because I did something for your city. So maybe if you're a wealthy individual in the city, maybe you'll, you'll host the Olympic Games or some kind of like lower level Olympic Games in your city. Right? Brings economy and people come and visit the city and all you business owners are gonna do well because I funded this event. But now you all within the city owe me, right? I'm going to gain an advantage, and you're going to vote for me for this public office now because I did this, okay? And, and if we have a chance, we'll mention a, a, a road that was paved in the city of Corinth, and the man who paved the road sends his greetings <laughs> to the church in Rome, right? And there's actually an inscription with this guy's name on it. All right? um, so uh, this, this is the way it works. I do something for you because you now owe me and then you do something back for me. When Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. This is, this is craziness, Jesus. This, is not, this does not make economic sense. This is not how to get ahead. Right? Treat others the way you want to treat them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do love those. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? See this economic system of, of honor and shame? If you do good to those who do good to you, that's great. Whoop-de-doo. But do good to those who don't do good. It's the poor. It's the, under, it's the outcasts. It's, it's the others. who right? Love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect, verse 35, expecting nothing in return. And then look at the answer. Your reward will be great and you'll be sent to the Most High, where's your reward going to be? It's an eternal reward. Okay. All right, Larry. So Jesus had a, a very unpopular message as far as the Romans go. Absolutely. And his own people. And those sound like very calculated times. That's correct. And no, if you're listening on tape, I think you guys can, can hear the questions. Um, but the, the statement was, Jesus had an unpopular message in, in, in the Roman world as well as in the Jewish world. Um, but if you want to be my disciple, take up your... Wrong, wrong. It is not a popular message. No. Well, it wasn't a popular yeah. message to the yeah. Jews as a whole, but he really went after the establishment. He's after the establishment. You know, the religious establishment and mm -hmm. the rich. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair. Or not. That's fair. 
right? Obviously, there's a deeper issue that, that transcends all of that because you could be physically poor and spiritually poor as well right. and, and not accept Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, John 5, he, you know, he heals a man and the man doesn't repent. He doesn't follow Jesus. When he finds it, because he was blind, right? And so, and Jesus said, go wash, go wash. So when he goes and washes and opens his eyes, he doesn't know what Jesus looks like. Mm-hmm. So later on, he find, Jesus confronts the guy and goes, oh, you're the one who healed me? Hey, it was Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now he turns Jesus in. He's not following Jesus. So there's a blind person who's healed of his blindness who still also remains spiritually blind. So that, that's right. So, uh, all right. So was there another hand? I was just saying, so basically... Uh, the, the four gospel, the gospels period, you know, Jesus is Lord. That's what he's coming, basically, that's what he's displaying. Yes. He's Lord. And? Christ. <laughs> well, my mind is, I'm still trying to. That, that, yeah, yeah. He's Lord and your wallet's not. Right. Yeah. Right. Your pride's no, not. Yeah. Right. Your honor's not. Right. Your wealth is not. Your degrees are not. Your job status is not. He busting up a lot of stuff. Right? <laughs> But getting back to Dan's question, and I'm sure you'll go into it in more detail, you can't feed the poor and take care of the church if you don't have some rich people. That's correct. That's correct. So there is a Theophilus. He can't do anything with that. He is writing this to Theophilus, and I don't think he, I don't think we read this as though he's he's challenging Theophilus and uh, undermining Theophilus because the guy's financing this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So so there's a sense where Theophilus has to grapple with this. But we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, for example, that there are wealthy individuals mm-hmm. who are financing the ministries. Yeah. And, and, that, right? and so Paul's going to say that everyone should give as you've decided in your heart to give. Yeah. Right? And so we, giving is there, and absolutely, it's just simply necessary. So we can have the wealth, but that can't be your economy. That can't be your Lord. You can't serve God and mammon. Yeah, that's right. And, and, that, and that's, that's the danger. So there's this blessing and curses with it. If you're blessed with wealth, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't just automatically assume that if you have wealth or power, therefore you are blessed. Because it, it, it comes with responsibility and dangers and snares. Right? And, it, it's, and it's hard. So, all right. Anybody else? Right, hey, let's take a break. We're going to go a little bit further in Luke still. And then we'll, and then we'll, start, math, uh, we'll start John also. Go ahead and record. Uh, I'm gonna take, let's take the risk of looking at one more thing in Luke 6. I don't want to get bogged down too long. Let's see if we can get through the rest of the Gospel of Luke um, in, in about 15 minutes or so, and then we'll pick up the Gospel of John. Uh, but note, then, Luke 6, we really got to grapple with. I, mean, I think, again, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I said a few weeks ago, if you only have three chapters in the entire New Testament that you can have, take those three chapters, wrestle with them, we're good to go. Right? But we really need to wrestle with Luke 6, because Jesus is really going to mess with the way we do things, and our economies, and, and things of that nature. So, learn without expecting anything in return. Right? Verse 35, love your enemies and do good. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, um, look what he says uh, in verse uh, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Well, you didn't finish 35. You didn't expect nothing. That, that, yeah, no, because I, I think I said that earlier. That's oh, why. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, you're good. <laughs> All right. Um, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Uh, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What he's saying is, is in your economic dealings, if you fill a, 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 a quart with grain, you know, there's air pockets in there. But you shake it down, it settles, you put more in. That's not good business. Right? 
Your grain doesn't go as far. You don't make as much money. Not as much profit. And this is, I'm not worried about that. We're going to see something in Luke 16 in a minute. All right. All right. Let me, let's, let's skip forward now. I want to go to Luke 15 and Luke 16. But here's the next thing that, to note. Let me note two things about the Gospel of Luke that will be important to note. One is that almost every story happens at a meal. And if you don't understand the honor and shame culture, what's going on, namely the poor are not invited, only those who can give you honor are invited, and when you invite them, not only do they give you honor, but they're in your debt until they pay you back, which means you get a free meal off of them, so it makes sense to do this. Furthermore, even at the meal, where you are seated is, is dependent upon your honor. Right? Remember Jesus is going to say, I think it's Luke 14, you know, when you come, don't seek the best seat, because something more important might come and might boot you to the end of the table. Instead, seek the lowest seats, and then they'll invite you to the best seats. Wow. And most likely, by the way, they... Guilty ass charge. You're going to stay in the next hour and a half, and this is going to be guilt all, all night long. We're good. Uh, uh, but uh, the idea of getting the best seat, of course, is the fact that we're going to sit at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? And we're going to have the best seat in that eternal banquet uh, that, that's going on there. All right, now, the other thing to note in the Gospel of Luke is the chapter breaks aren't the best in the Gospel of Luke. In many cases, chapter breaks, paragraph breaks are extremely good and extremely helpful. You still have to be careful because, you know, we do our, our daily devotional. I'm going to read Matthew 5 today, and, you know, you forget that 6, 7, and 8, and 9 are all connected with the one, you know. So you've got to be careful that you, you connect what you read with what happened prior. But in all reality, Luke is going to have long sections. And you have to break it up. Because what really is one section for Luke is like four and a half chapters. And it would be like 200 verses. And it's, just, it's unreasonable to have that be one chapter. So you have to break it up. But look, for example, and I'm just going to look at it in my Bible without bringing it up on the screen. Uh, in Luke 15. All right, we're going to note that verse... Uh, verses, verse 3 just tells them a parable. Now my Bible has a break after Luke 15, 3, after verse 7. And there's a, and there's a heading that says the, the lost coin. In other words, another parable starts in verse 8. But note there's no black letters. There's no, and then Jesus said. It's just Jesus talking and Jesus talking. We now know, we can tell, or oh, what woman, right, that there's another parable that takes place. Now the next parable begins in verse 11, and note the three black letters in my Bible, and then he, and he said, or three black words, excuse me, and, and he said, but in the rest it's all red letters. Okay. Now skip down to chapter 16, verse 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples, okay, let's go back, verse, verse 3 of chapter 15, he's answering the Pharisees, we're going to look at this in a, for, just a, for a few minutes in just a moment. He was speaking to the Pharisees in 15, verse 3. Verse 8, a parable that just continues from the previous parable. Verse 11, and he said, a third parable that continues from the... He, he's still speaking to the Pharisees, in other words. 16.1, he was also speaking to his disciples. Meaning the context hasn't changed. The situation hasn't changed. The circumstance hasn't changed. It's just the different people he's addressing. Okay. Now notice, 16 verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. Meaning the parable he just told the disciples, the Pharisees were listening. 
And they were scoffing at him, which I mentioned already, is their way of mocking Jesus to put him down and shame him. And he said to them, meaning the context is still the same. The scene has not changed. He went from the Pharisees to the disciples and now back to the Pharisees. Okay. Now, note verse 19 in my Bible has another heading, the rich man and Lazarus. But there's no black letters. There's no transition in Luke's narrative. Now go to chapter 7. So he tells that parable to the Pharisees, in other words. 17 verse 1. And he said to the disciples, again, no transitions. See how this is going to be one really, really long chapter if Luke doesn't break it up. But when he breaks it up, no, you can't disconnect what happened prior to what happens now because now he speaks to his disciples again. Right? Now look at 17, yeah, look at 1711. And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he's passing between Samaria and... It's a whole change of scenery, isn't it? Yes. That should be a chapter break. Because that's clearly a new section. Okay? And the scene has changed, the subject has changed, the context has changed. So 15, at least 15, 1 to, uh, 15 uh, through 16 and, all, and 17, 10 is at least one section. And in all honesty, by the way, it's actually a bigger section than that. It actually starts earlier than that. But the section ends in 17, 10. So be careful about chapter breaks and paragraph breaks in the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, Larry. No, no, you answer. I was saying one chapter. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. So it, it really goes back to, to 13, uh, earlier in 13 and, and, and 14. Right? And, and we won't have time for this, but um, 14 has um, the parable of the guests, where Jesus says, when you're invited, right, don't seek the best seats. He says all that. And then um, 15, 14, verse 15, when those who were reclining at the table with him heard them, he said, uh, uh, he said to him, blessed is everyone who should eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he tells a parable. Okay. A certain man was giving a dinner, and note the honor and shame elements to, to, the, to that dinner that's going on there. Now let's go to 15, though, and pick it back up here, because I want to I at, at least look at this section, and we're going to probably not get to the end of Luke um, today. That's okay. Uh, real quick, just yes, Please. Now, is this consistent in the Old Testament, too, these, uh, what you just described? Uh, the, the, the messiness of, the, uh, of it? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's really Luke that's this messy. Matthew, Mark, and John, the chapter breaks are pretty good. They're not always perfect, but they're pretty good. Most chapter breaks and stuff like that in the New Testament and in the Old Testament are pretty well done. Mm. Maybe the most famous Old Testament that's not well done is Isaiah 53. It really begins in 52, verse 13. So, uh, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions and the sheep before shears, it's like, you know, the lamb that was slain. It really starts in 52, 13. And then, but it ends in 53, verse 12, which is the end of the chapter. So... Um, but he kind of missed that. And there's a, there are some like that uh, um, also. All right, Luke 15, verse 1. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. So there's a scene, a new setting. Okay. But both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. Now, by the way, I note, that word grumble is often important in the New Testament because it's the same word used with the Israelites in, in, in Numbers 14. They were grumbling at Moses. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees in the New Testament are equated with the grumbling Israelites or the unbelieving Israelites who grumbled and Moses said, guess what? You guys don't get the promised land. Your kids will. Right? So it's very significant when that word grumbling is used. And when I say the word grumble, I mean the Greek word grumble is the same as the Greek translation of, the, of Numbers 14. So it's the same word there. Uh, that, that's how we, we compare the two. All right. uh, both the Pharisees and the, and the scribes were grumbling, saying, 
This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So note, there's your context. The parable that we're about to read is Jesus' answer as to why he's eating with tax collectors and Pharisees. Why are you eating with them, Jesus? That's the wrong folk. They don't bring you honor. They bring you shame. Right? Now, what we'll notice then is actually three parables follow. But note the parallels between the parables. The first one's the parable of the, she- of the lost sheep. The next one's the parable of the lost coin. And the next one's the parable of the, of the lost son. Mm-hmm. Note something's lost in each of the three parables. Mm-hmm. So they clearly relate to each other. Note also, one out of a hundred sheep is lost. One out of ten coins is lost. One out of two sons is lost. So one hundred to ten to two. So you can see this growing intensity in the parables. Remember, why is he telling the parable? Because the question is, why are you eating with these people? The answer is, the man lost the sheep and he found it. In verse 6 he says, when he comes home he calls his friends together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because they were lost and now they're found. And he says, Rejoice with me. We don't have to go further. That, there's your answer, but we'll, we'll keep going. A woman loses a coin in verse uh, 7 or 6. Um, uh, let's see, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 7. I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous person who need, needs no repentance. Verse 8. A woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one. It's probably her dowry, by the way. When a woman is divorced, if a woman is divorced, all she gets to take with her is what she's wearing. If she has 10 coins on her headdress... That's going to provide her some income if she actually gets divorced. She loses one of those coins. She's frantic. I've got to find this. So she frantically looks for it, and she finds it, and she says in the middle of verse 9, Rejoice with me because I found the coin that was lost. Verse 10, I, I say in the same way, there's more joy in heaven or the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now verse 11, a man had two sons. Right? Now, again, honor and shame, if we would have spent a lot of time on honor and shame, we, we could, but, but we won't. Could, could this verse be looked look at as opportunity when he's saying, um, you know, I'm going back to 15, mm-hmm. where he says, where, um, this, where they said, this man received sinners and eat with them. Then he turned back where he says, what man, what man of you having a hundred sheep if one is lost? And then he's talking to those that are basically he's talking to those that are lost. But would that be... Well, then he turns back and says, um, uh, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. That's right. And I'm using that word opportunity. I'm giving them, ones that were lost, I'm giving them the opportunity not to be lost. Well, yeah, I'm going to go chase them down and find them. Sure. But they still have to make a choice. They, they, yeah, I, I would agree. That's correct. You can't read too much in the parables, like our theology in the parables. Oh. The point, of, when, when you're reading a parable, it's like, what's the point of the parable? Right. And it's to explain why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Don't add any more <laughs> incidental details. right? Because right. the, the parables have that one, one, one key focus. Now, there's some exceptions. Like the next one's going to be a little bit more complicated. All right, very briefly here. The parable of the lost son, which we often call the prodigal son, which if you haven't heard, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God. Hmm. It's an excellent, excellent expose of this parable. Uh, see, the word prodigal means to lavish excessively. And the, the, the one son took the father's inheritance, took his inheritance, and he lavished it excessively. But in the parable, he's not the prodigal, the father is. Because the father has this lavish banquet for his son. It's the father who's really the prodigal one here. Right. 
Uh, and of course, the question is, is, why is he eating with him? It's not the son and what he did. It's the father's love for the son and welcoming this, the son back. But notice the honor and shame, by the way. The, the son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because giving my, inher my inheritance is what happens when you die. Mm -hmm. Dad, you're no good to me alive. Mm -hmm. You're better off dead. All right. How disgraceful is that? Right. How much shame has this son brought into the home? Now, what the father should do at this moment is to kick him out. Because you've brought shame into the home. The father goes ahead and does it anyway. It's a parable, so that's okay. The father does it anyways. He shares, he splits up the inheritance. Now, note, in an inheritance, the older son or the firstborn son gets a double share. So if there's two sons, the older son got two-thirds and the younger son got one-third. So in other words, don't forget that the older son actually got two-thirds. The younger son gets his one-third and he goes off and lavishly lives, lives lavishly, etc. But then he falls into poverty and he's with the pigs, which means he's not in Jewish area. He's amongst the Gentiles. And he, and he longs to eat what even the pigs are, are eating. But note what he says in verse 17. He came to a sentence, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. We call that he is repenting. repenting. He's repenting. <clears throat> I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Meaning, I'm not asking to be your son again. I'm asking to actually work for you. I'll be a day laborer for you. Because I'll be better off than where I am with, with these pigs. <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, let's see. When he got a long way off, the father saw him, verse 20, and he felt compassion for him. I think the word compassion occurs three times in the Gospel of Luke. One is in the parable of um, uh, the... the uh, um, uh, it's Luke 10, the parable of, it's a very famous parable, the parable of the, um, the, the Good Samaritan. Probably, uh, he, he felt compassion for him. Uh, another one here. Right? So he felt compassion for him and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, in that culture, men don't run. Why? Why? Because, A, I'm of such honor, you can wait for me to get there. <laughs> I arrive when I arrive. I'm, I'm never late. Right? Because I'm, the more honor you have, the, the less you're ever late. All right. Now, the reason why you don't run, of course, is because you have to tuck your robe into your, into your underwear, mm -hmm. right? girding up your loins, lest you trip. And you're exposing your leg. It's shameful. It's, right? He runs. The father should not let the son back. To come back is to bring disgrace back into the home. It's bad enough what you've done. You've brought shame into us. The best thing that son can do is stay away. Not only does he come back, but the father runs out, embraces him, and kisses him, and the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, and, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. Okay. Now, let's get to the end for just a second. Uh, verse 32. Uh, so the father now speaking to the older brother says, Son, verse 31, I'm sorry, verse 31. Son, you've always been with me and all that, I uh, that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and he's begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Mm -hmm. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Mm -hmm. Because I have to. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they were lost and now they're found. That's right. And they're welcome at the Father's banquet as long as, now we know, they repent. That's right. 
Right. They're welcome at the Father's banquet. All right, now, very interesting here, and I'm going to try to, try to, try to be co- uh, conscious of the time, because the Gospel of John is pretty good, too. All right. um, the way a story is told, right, if, if, if stories work on, on kind of this bell curve. Right? Uh, there's a setting. Right? Uh, this, is, this is just the way all stories uh, take place, and very rarely does a movie you know, or a Disney story ever, ever alter. Right. There's, there's this king and a queen, and they're as happy as can be, and they give birth to a little girl, and this wonderful princess. Right? There's a setting. Right. Then there's a conflict. Something bad happens. The, the, uh, uh, an evil witch puts a spell upon the, uh, the, the girl, and she falls asleep. Or, or uh, the, the evil witch has, has the girl uh, imprisoned with, with a dragon guarding the prison. Right? There's a conflict. Right? And the conflict intensifies, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually, there's this moment of climax. Right? And the moment of climax usually happens right before it can not possibly ever be solved, because it, it's just not going to ever get worse than what it is. But oh, guess what? Prince Charming slays the dragon, frees the princess, right? And there's this resolution, right? And then, of course, you know, the, the ending. And the ending is they all live happily ever after. Okay. Now, when you read the parable of the prodigal son, what you're going to notice, there's a setting, a man has two sons. Mm-hmm. One says this, Dad, I wish you were dead. Conflict. He then takes the inheritance, and he goes off and squanders it away. He's living with the pigs. The moment of climax is when he gets home. Dad, I have sinned. I'm going to say, Dad, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. What's the father going to do? What's going to happen? And the father receives him back and welcomes him back and has a banquet, and they all live happily ever after. But the parable doesn't end. No. (laughs) Because all of a sudden, there's another conflict. Yeah. Because the older brother comes out. Yeah. And note the older brother says, um, I am not going into that banquet, which is shameful. Your father is hosting a banquet, and you won't go in, and you make him come out to you? Not, not good. Right, and so, and look what happens. He says, Father, uh, your brother's come home, verse 27, and you've, and, and you've killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began, he began pleading with him. And he said to his father, verse 29, Look for so- Look is not what, how you address your father, by the way. Look. And, um, no, I don't think you command me to do anything uh, here. For so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected it. Yeah, my child said look to me like that. He probably wouldn't be standing upright at the end of it, right? I, I, I'm, I'm joking, by the way, because uh, uh, I love my kids uh, uh, greatly. But for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so I might celebrate with your friends. But when the son of yours, no, he does not say my brother, Contempt. right? Yeah, that's right. Who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Right, no, the father comes out now, and here's our climax. Here's our, here's our moment of climax. What's going to happen? Right? The, the, there's a confrontation. The father comes out and says, okay, and, and here's what the father says, right? Um, he said, son, you've always been with me, and all that I have is mine, all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Chapter 16, verse 1. He was also saying to his disciples, there's no resolution. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't end. It's the only parable of Jesus that has no ending. Why not? Because to me, we're just done with it. 
I mean, you know. You, know, you wanted them to put what the ending is going to be. Ah, because the older brother represents the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is inviting them into the banquet. Mm -hmm. But are you going to come or not? Still we, don't, we don't know. It's not until we go a little bit further we find out they don't actually come into the banquet. Now, very briefly here in chapter 16, verse 1. The most difficult parable of Jesus is, is Luke 16, 1. But I think we have some context. Hopefully that will be able to explain it. All right. Do you think the Pharisees was getting it when he was doing that? Doing no. That no. I don't. No. I, we're told in the scriptures that the Pharisees, that the disciples don't even get the parables. Yeah. That Jesus is explaining everything privately to, to his disciples. Remember in Mark, Mark 4. Right? Um, in, in Mark 12... He tells a parable like, well, we don't know what you mean, but you're talking about us, aren't you? So they, get a, they get a little bit, right? But, but not necessarily. That, that's correct. Okay. All right, so Luke 16 now. There's a rich man, verse 1, who had a manager. And this manager reported to him, was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So he called the man and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master's taking away the management from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each of his master's debtors, and he began to say to, him the, say to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil, which is a massive amount. A hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. He said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Yeah. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in very little things is also faithful in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, I tell you, if, therefore, if you have not been faithful and the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? Amen. And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Okay. Now remember, this is a very difficult parable. I'm just going to cut to the chase uh, quickly. Here. Remember, he's speaking to the disciples. Okay. The problem in the, in the parable is... How could Jesus, or in this instance, the master, commend the unrighteous steward? The guy ripped him off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, note, in this culture, it's actually acceptable. He hasn't fired him yet. And as the, uh, it's, it's basically, he's like a general manager. And this, and this guy has a lot of businesses going on. So he actually has all the authority to act in the owner's uh, uh, stead. So what he did was legal and appropriate. You haven't fired me yet. I could do this. The man says, the, the uh, steward says, what am I going to do? Because once the guy kicks me out of work, I'm going to have to do one of two things. I'm either going to have to work with my hands and be a day laborer, or I'm going to have to beg. And he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So uh, I'm in trouble. I know what I'll do. I'm going to do you a favor, and when I'm done, you owe me. And I'm going to do you a favor, and when I'm done, you owe me. When I do you guys a favor, and my master cans me, you guys owe me, and now you'll take me into your homes. 
very, very shrewd. He took care of himself so that when the master canned him, he had a place to go. Jesus is not commending, or the master is not commending uh, um, uh, what the guy did. He's commending the shrewdness with which he did it. Now, Jesus now turns and says, why don't you guys do that? Why don't you guys take, this is what he says, I say to you, verse 9, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. I don't know, use money. Use wealth. That doesn't have to just be money. It could be goods or, or services, right? Use money. But look at verse 9. So that when it fails, they, the question is, who's the they, will receive you into eternal dwellings. Note, they won't receive you into their houses now because they can't. The they is the poor. Use money now for the poor because that's not what they're doing out there. Use it shrewdly, but not to get yourself something now. Because if you did it for something now, you wouldn't do it for the poor. Do it for the poor, and then they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. You'll be blessed then. And now as we continue to go on, what happens a few verses later is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus is blessed in eternity, and the rich man is cursed in, in eternity. Does motives become an issue? Uh, yes, always. Motives, does motives become an issue if I, if, if my, if my main goal is just to secure a safety, living, housing, et cetera, et cetera, for myself? That's right. But I don't really care for you. Uh, I, just, that, yeah, absolutely. That's the issue. Right? That, that's the issue. In fact, and if that's your motive, your motivation, then you're certainly not going to do it for the poor, for those who are in, who are in desperate need. You're only concerned for yourself. That's right. Can I do it for the poor but still have ungodly motives? Well, you can, but in this economy, you're probably not going to. That'd be, that'd be silly. Keep because you're not going to get any, anything out of it. If you, if you have these ungodly motives for your own best interest, you're simply not going to do it for the poor. Right. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter. You know, there can be a way in our culture where we esteem people who do things for the poor. You know, you're honored and you get... You get Nobel prizes, or you get lore, you know, you get acclamations, and you get applause. But you know, and you could be doing it for that reason, for that reason. And God's like, okay, guess what? I know your heart, right? So, yeah, there really is, there really is that judgment of the heart. So, okay, hey, that's enough for Luke. I wish we could spend some time on, on the fulfillment and, and at the end of the gospel, but we won't.